And thank you. You may be seated. Even as you grab your Bibles and we return to Matthew chapter 19, let me read a poem for you that introduces well where we're going today. It's probably been about 30 years since Janet and I first heard this poem and listening to a concert by Steve and Annie Chapman. Um, Steve and Annie have been here, by the way, did a concert in our woods a couple years ago. Steve Chapman was here and ministered at our wild game feast and did a great job. Uh, they're songwriters and ministers to the family. They do a great job. We really enjoy their music. And one time they shared this poem and I uh, had it on, a, on an old cassette tape back then and I played it back and forth until I could write it down. I've used it here a number of times, so if it's familiar to you, that's why. Others of you, it'll be new perhaps. It's entitled, Marriage at an Early Urge. Nice night in June. Starshine, big moon. In park with girl. Head pound, heart pound, head swirl. Me say love, she coo like dove. Me smart, me fast, me never let chance pass. Get hitched, me say, she say okay. Wedding bells, ring, ring, honeymoon, everything, settled down, happy man, married life, happy wife. Another night in June, stars shine, big moon, ain't happy no more. <laughs> Carrie Babley, walk floor. Wife mad, she stew, me mad, stew too. Life one big spat, nagging wife, bawling brat, me realize at last. Me move too fast. <laughs> it reminds us of the marriage fence that I talked about last week. I did copy that, did a little artwork for you on a page there that should be in your bulletin as sort of an addendum to your notes. We're not going to look at the fence again, but we'll look at the notes. Uh, I had a number of people ask me um, to remind them of what the rails in the fence were. And so I put that in there and you can listen to last week's message and get a little bit of explanation about that. But isn't it interesting that two people who can be so in love can grow so far apart? Not just apart, but they can get to where they literally cannot stand to be in the same room. That's what our Lord is addressing today. We're in Matthew chapter 19 as we work our way through Matthew's gospel. Our Lord is being asked a question about divorce. When can it take place? And we talked last week, of, I was talking about doing weddings here and how I stand and the groom is right here and the bride comes down the aisle. And you know, I'm really up close and personal at weddings as the minister. And the emotion is so deep and rich and the joy is so overflowing. And sometimes even with tears, they gaze at each other. They are so in love. And I've been in ministry long enough then to experience even the same couple who was so in love on their wedding day, years later, do not even want to be in my office at the same time together. It's the reality of life, isn't it? It's the world in which we live, and you need to know that it was also the reality of the world in which Jesus lived. And you'll recall, if you look down in our notes, that we had begun to look into this text of Matthew 19, where our Lord is doing some specific teaching about marriage and and, uh, and then by inference by, about remarriage, what are the parameters? And one of the things we realized was point number one in our notes, and it was that marriage was in chaos at this time. And it was in chaos because of a legal technicality about whether or not you had to fill out a certificate. And they figured out that they had, could fill out a certificate and then anything would go. And actually, we talked about last week how in the cultural context of the day and, and what the disciples would have grown up with in this world where Jesus was, there were two schools of thought. There was the more conservative, narrow-minded Rabbi Shammai who, who taught that there were only a few instances where divorce could take place by extreme sexual violations of the marriage bed. And, um, but then this Rabbi Hillel had taught that almost anything could entail reason for divorce. And as you can imagine, that was the popular view of the day. And we're going to reread our text and remind ourselves that this is, the, this is the reality in which Jesus finds himself surrounded by a group of people who all pretty much are followers of Rabbi Hillel and who all, in the culture of the day, 
among themselves had likely experienced divorce, many of them maybe multiple times, the sympathy of the audience was certainly with Rabbi Hillel. And so the Pharisees are trying to ask a question of Jesus and get him in trouble. Let's read the text and remind ourselves of what's going on. And then we're going to pick up in our notes where we rather abruptly left off last week. This is Matthew chapter 19. Matthew takes a moment to explain to us that Jesus had finished some teaching. We had studied those in Matthew 18. And then he went away from Galilee. He now enters the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And he's entering now essentially his final phase of ministry as he prepares to head to Jerusalem not many months ahead. He's going to do a lot of teaching to his disciples. We have a lot of really interesting material coming up in the weeks ahead as we finish out Matthew. It says in verse 2 that large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Verse 3, and, a fair, and the Pharisees came up to him and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? We know it's a disingenuous question because they're trying to test him. It is possible, we reflected upon last week, that they were trying to trap Jesus into a conversation like they had led John the Baptist um, where maybe on this issue of marriage he would go off and start getting after Herod the king and his unlawful marriage and his unlawful divorce and then get his head cut off like John the Baptist did. They were trying to get Jesus in trouble. At the least, they're asking this question because they recognize that the audience are followers of Rabbi Hillel and they're very open and many have experienced um, divorce and for any number of reasons. They want to get Jesus in trouble with the audience one way or the other. He answers them, and he pokes them in the eye with this answer, you'll recall. Have you not read? And of course they had read the Bible over and over the Old Testament. He takes them back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. He takes them back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And asking a Pharisee if they had not read this stuff would be like um, asking a Ph.D. if he knew his alphabet. I mean, it was just an, it was an embarrassing question. And Jesus turns, have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and they shall hold fast or cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, you find any room for separation in there? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, God has joined it together. Do not let man separate. And that was the balance of our message last week. And it was underneath the. Uh, Point number one in what Jesus taught, and he goes back to Genesis, and he, he builds just a powerful case on the sanctity of marriage and how God designed marriage never to be a separation, no allowance for it. It was never in the mind of God that divorce would occur when he created marriage. And everything about marriage, from, the, from Adam and Eve coming back together into one flesh as though it were before he began when God created Adam and then he took Eve out of the man. He brings her back to the man and the two then become one again. That's an inseparable picture. There were no other male or female around with which who to separate and with who to uh, cohabitate with or to get with and, and become divorced and remarried. And there was nothing in the imagery here that allowed for divorce. And they became one and they would leave and this relationship became more important even than the parent-child relationship. There was no relationship that could trump the marriage relationship. And, and then God put it together, he said. And what God has put together in some mysterious spiritual way, do not let man separate. And so Jesus comes back to them. And in this audience of followers of Hillel and the Pharisees, who are no doubt followers of Hillel, said, no, it's not there. So he points them back to the origin and to the initial reality of why God made marriage the way he did. And well, they realize they're not getting very far that way. So now we enter into our text for this week, and it begins with, with verse 7. And so they change the direction a little bit, and they go to Moses. They go to Deuteronomy chapter 24, and they say to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said, Jesus said to them, Well, it was because of the hardness of their hearts. That's why Moses allowed, not commanded, he allowed you to divorce your wives. But he reminds them from the beginning there was no plan like this. This was never God's plan. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. 
What was he saying? There's a whole audience of people here who have divorced for all kinds of reasons. And you're telling them that they've committed adultery. That's indeed what Jesus is telling them. So you, what we've already kind of alluded to and emphasized, not only was marriage in chaos because men were divorcing their wives for any kind of any number of reasons, but divorce was very common. Point number two, if you want to reflect to the notes and turn to the notes. And it was partly due to, to textual ambiguity. That is, that what was in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 24 particularly, was a little bit difficult to define down. And we have similar problems today. We're going to see that later in our text today. What does, what does marital unfaithfulness mean? What does that mean? And so you have a little bit of ambiguity in the phrasing of the scripture there. And so all of the students of scripture look at it and they all come up with their own idea of what it must mean. In fact, let's go and look at Deuteronomy 24 right now so that you can see what we're talking about. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is, is the passage that the Pharisees are pointing out to Jesus. And they're saying, all right, um, why then did Moses command a divorce? Well, first of all, you need to understand, it's the second bullet point. This is a misrepresentation of Moses. Moses did not command divorce. He allows divorce. And in, Christ, in Jesus' answer, you even pick up on that. He says, he doesn't correct them, but he just says, Moses allowed divorce. So he changes the word in his answer. And there was no command. There was no provision in, in divorce. Part of what was happening here was the reality of the fact that the Israelite men had hardened their heart. And over the course of generational hardness of heart, it had become acceptable in Israel to marry multiple wives. And they had crossed the lines geographically and begun to marry people that God had said, do not marry them. It was the equivalent of marrying an unsaved person. They went out and they married the Canaan among the Canaanite tribes. And they were pagan people and they worshipped false gods. Well, you can imagine what happened. They bring their wives home. They marry. They have children. And the wives begin to teach their young children, children who are fathered by Israelite men, they begin to teach them about the false gods that they grew up in Canaan with. And so now you have this melting pot and you have a delusion a, a dilution, a, a melting down of the, the Israelite nation and their commitment to God. And this goes on generationally until there's tremendous sin going on in the camp. Moses then gives some instruction about these men. You can write up a certificate of divorce and he allows them. And it's all a result of the hardness of their hearts. So not only was it a misinterpretation, Moses did not command divorce, he allowed it. But it was a misrepresentation then that was creating a commonness of divorce. I want to show that to you in this passage. And it gets down to the point when we read this of what does this one phrase mean? Some indecency. Let's read it. This is what they're referencing, no doubt. Deuteronomy 24 begins with verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found, here's the phrase, some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce you can see why back in Matthew chapter 5 by the way this certificate of divorce became a really important thing it's from this passage you can just keep passing these wives on as long as you wrote a certificate of divorce Puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. There's more in the passage there, but for the sake of our time and study today, I want us to focus on the part that the Pharisees are pointing out to Jesus why did Moses command a divorce? Jesus says he didn't command. They misinterpret that. He allows. Then they, their divorce was common because of a misrepresentation of a phrase in this verse here. And it's because there is some ambiguity in understanding what the text means. Now, let me show you what I mean here. So they're camping on the idea. The Pharisees are. And Hillel is teaching this. That if you find, look at the phrase that's in the ESV, if you find some indecency, 
in your wife, then you can send her off. Well, what in the world is that? What does that mean? Some indecency. Um, some translations use the phrase something improper. Now, we know from the Hebrew grammar that the, a literal takedown of that phrase means the nakedness of a thing. It has something to do with an inappropriate uncovering of the sexual organs. But, but it is a little bit ambiguous, just the nakedness of a thing. You also need to understand that there was some ambiguity in understanding exactly what was being stated here because that phrase that's translated in 24.1 uh, there, some indecency is used in other places in our Old Testament. And you can learn what they, how they used it from that. And in fact, you don't have to look very far. In my Bible, I can look just to the left column of my page directly across from 24.1 is chapter 23, verse 14. And I want to start with verse 9. And I want to show you in Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 14, um, an example of how this word is used. And then you can see why they argued over what it really meant. This is further instruction by Moses to the Israelites from God on how they were to behave. And it's really a crass um, illustration. I'm warning you. But it's real, and you all will understand it. So Moses says, through the Lord's instruction to Israel, Deuteronomy 23, 9, When you are encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. Okay? We're to be a separate people. We're to be a holy people. If a man among you becomes unclean... Oh, that's not what I wanted to read. Verse 12 is where I wanted to start. Skip that one. You shall have a place outside the camp. That's where I wanted to start. 12 through 14. You can read that on your own later. I'm not reading that from up here. You shall have a place. I really did not do that on purpose. I, 12 through 14 is it's even what I have written in my notes. You shall have a place outside the camp. And this is the crass illustration I'm telling you. You shall have a place outside the camp and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel with your tools. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not, here it is, see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Okay, you got the picture here? Moses is giving instruction to Israel and he's saying, look, we're in camp together here and there's some hygiene instruction. When you have to go to the bathroom, namely number two, everybody should have a little tool in their toolkit and you walk outside of the camp to a designated area, you take your tool, you dig up the dirt, you squat down, you do your business, you take your tool, you cover it back up. All right? There's good reason for all that. Namely, so that nobody steps in. All right? This is cleaner. But that's not the reason that Moses gives. He says, the Lord your God is walking among you in the camp. And we don't want him to see anything indecent. It is the exact same Hebrew word that Moses is giving in 24.1 of some indecency that allows for divorce. So now the rabbis get together and they're comparing scripture with scripture and they're trying to understand what the text says. Well, what is the meaning of something indecent? Can't you see how they begin to argue and some have a broad ranging view? Of what this word might mean. It means something dirty. It means something that would contaminate. It means something that you don't want to have a part of. Others are saying, no, it specifically, narrowly means adultery only. It, is, it certainly implies a sexual uncovering of the, of the private parts. And so it surely has to do with that. And this is exactly the debate that the disciples and the audience around Jesus back in Matthew chapter 19, and you can turn there, this is exactly what they would have understood. They would have understood that there was all kinds of argument about what does something indecent mean so that we can divorce our wives. And they would have adopted Hillel, Rabbi Hillel's point of view, which was a broad-ranging Definition and in fact had been defined down by the rabbis and was written in the in the Mishnah. And I want to take a minute and I want to just read to you excerpts 
from the Mishnah and other holy, they would call them holy writings. What this is, is the rabbi's interpretation of the law of Moses. So what they would do, they would read Deuteronomy 24.1, and then they would want to define, okay, well, what does something indecent mean? And so the people in, in their area that they were spiritually responsible for, they would read the word, they would ask, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? And so they would teach, well, it means this, and it means this, and it means this. And this would get refined down, even generationally, and they began to write things down. And the Mishnah became a commentary on the law. It became kind of the rules and regulations that the rabbis accepted and the problem with them, and we've talked about this before earlier in Matthew, that what happened is the extra biblical interpretations and the, trans the, the writings of the rabbis became more important to them than the law of God. And they even said more than what God said sometimes. And that's why they became so legalistic and so difficult. That's why, for example, they would point at Jesus and his disciples as, Don't you know that your disciples don't wash their hands when they eat? Because it says, and we know exactly how much water to use and how to hold our hands and how the whole ritual is written down in the Mishnah and other writings. Exactly how the law was to be fulfilled. And this was too. Now let me read some of that to you. Like I said... What we're talking about is the interpretation of the word something improper or something indecent or some unclean thing, however it's translated in your Bible. What does that mean? The audience would have had a broad-ranging knowledge of what it meant based upon the Mishnah. Here, here we go. Listen, it's kind of funny. The Mishnah stated that a man could divorce his wife... If she were barren, if she became a deaf mute, or if she had epilepsy, tetanus, warts, or leprosy. In the Mishnah, it insisted that a man could divorce his wife if she failed to perform certain services in the home. Each day, she was required to grind flour, bake bread, wash clothes, cook food, nurse the children, make the beds, and weave with wool. If she brought one servant into the marriage, she did not have to grind, bake, or wash. If she brought a second servant into the marriage, she did not have to nurse the children or cook. If she brought a third servant into the home, she did not have to make up the bed or work in wool. If she brought four servants into the home, she could sit in a chair all day long and not lift a finger, but, it, but watch out. However, if her husband considered her lazy, he still had the prerogative to divorce her. Rabbinic law also stated that certain physical defects in the wife were so offensive that they were legitimate grounds for divorce as defined as some unclean thing. The general principle was that any physical defect or blemish that was serious enough to disqualify a man from the priesthood was certainly sufficiently repulsive to serve as a ground for divorce. All of this out of their writings. Consequently, a man could divorce his wife if she had a head that was wedge-shaped, turnip-shaped, or hammer-shaped. Or if her head was otherwise malformed, such as sunk in or flat in the back. He could divorce his wife if she had poor posture or if she had thinning hair. He could divorce her if she had no eyebrows, only one eyebrow, or bushy eyebrows. He could divorce her if she had a pug nose. The condition of her eyes was particularly important. If she had eyes that were too high or too low, if she were cross-eyed, had no eyelashes, had eyes of two different colors, watery eyes, or eyes big as a calf, or it says small like a goose, any of these... Any of these justified divorce. The man could divorce his wife if her nose were too big or too little, her ears were too little or too floppy, if she had an overbite or an underbite, missing teeth or a poor figure, a swollen belly, a protruding navel, oversized or damaged sexual organs, a dark complexion, bony ankles or knees, swollen feet, if she were bow-legged, suffering from swelling of the big toe, if her heel, if her heel had protrusions, if the sole of her foot was as wide as that of a goose, or if she were ambidextrous, they were hung up on geese, right? And it goes on. And it's just, it's outrageous. So you see, as the Pharisees come up to Jesus, marriage is in chaos, divorce is common, and the reason it was common is because of somewhat of the ambiguity of the Deuteronomy 24 passage in what does something unclean mean? And how the rabbis then had defined it down, and ultimately the, the, the broad defining of that phrase, the broad range defining of that phrase had become the common understanding and acceptable culturally of the day. 
That's not an, it's not a lot unlike that today, is it? I mean, you can just pretty much divorce for any reason you want. And it becomes unclean, and I finally get to I just can't stand that person. We just have irreconcilable differences. Whoever came up with that phrase on the divorce paperwork should have patented it. They'd be rich. Copyrighted it. Well, when we look back at Matthew 19 and Jesus gives his answer, we find out what Jesus thinks, at least to some degree, about what the unclean thing is or what this dissatisfaction is that a husband might find in his wife. Because look what he says. All right. He says, divorce has a cause. Let's move on to point number three. And that cause is because of sinful propensity, the sinful propensity of a man's heart. They say to him, let's look at verse 7 again. They say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? We've already reviewed that that's a misunderstanding. And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart. There it is. Hardness of heart. Listen, divorce is always the result of sin. It is always the result of sin. There's no such thing as a divorce that happens apart from sin. And because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives but, Jesus reminds them again, but from the beginning it was not so. Divorce was never, second bullet point, divorce was never part of God's plan. From the beginning it was not so. Now he goes on to define what we can understand a little bit what Jesus thought about the missionist interpretation. He thought it was too broad. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and here's the exception clause, except for sexual immorality and marries another, he commits adultery. They're talking about the Matthew 24 and finding something indecent, and Jesus describes it as sexual immorality in the marriage. That's how Jesus defines it. The disciples clearly think it's way too narrow because they're shocked. Now, I want to take a minute, and I want to go back to the Old Testament, and I want to illustrate a little bit more about the meaning of this idea of sexual immorality violating the marriage to the degree that the marriage finally is allowed to divorce. Divorce, Jesus says, is limited to sexual immorality. The passage that we find has to do with that phrase, hardness of heart, and God's response to Israel when they had hardness of heart. Will you go back to Jeremiah with me? The prophet Jeremiah... Um, right after Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah in there, Ecclesiastes, Jeremiah. And I want you to go to Jeremiah chapter 3. This won't take long, and I think you'll follow my logic here and my understanding of Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning with verse 6 through verse 8. Okay, so let's just remind ourselves. Here's Jesus. There's a crowd of people. The Pharisees come, they try to ask him a disingenuous question to get him in trouble. Jesus then goes on and responds what marriage is from the beginning. He knows that he's cutting against the grain of the entire culture of the day, where divorce was common because the Mishnah had allowed it for any number of reasons to define some uncleanness or some indecent thing as a broad ranging of just dissatisfaction of the husband towards the wife. So it was horribly abused. Jesus is reeling it way back in and he says, no, unless the marriage bed is defiled sexually, you have no basis for divorce. And in fact, he says, and if you divorce your wife and marry another, or if she marries another because you've divorced her, apart from sexual immorality, you commit adultery. And what is he doing? He's shocking the audience because many of them there had done that, had gotten divorced for, you know, for having a a wife with a tooth missing or whatever, ears that were floppy or eyes like a goose. And so he was saying to them, if you did this and you remarried and they had, you have committed adultery. So he's stunning the audience. Now I want us to take a little break from that mindset and I want to go to Jeremiah chapter 3 and I want to illustrate something that has to do with how God handled Israel for their unfaithfulnesses. It says in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6, The Lord said to me, to Jeremiah, in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? Remember that, the, that Israel as a nation had been divided. Israel to the north, more tribes to the north, two tribes to the south of Judah. Israel to the north had their own king. Judah to the south had their own king. They had had civil war. And Israel to the north was pagan to the core. 
Judah had a few righteous kings like Josiah, for example, but they were turning pagan as well. All right. And this had gone on generationally. And the Lord said, you have seen what faithless one Israel to the north has done, how she went up. Now listen to the language here. Listen to the language, how she went up on on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. This is what I want to illustrate to you is that when God looked at Israel, his beloved, the apple of his eye, God loved Israel. They were his chosen people. When they began to harden their hearts and turn away from God in idolatry, that is, they worshiped false gods, the prophets, and God himself often phrased this turning away to idols from the true living God. They, he often phrased it in negative sexual language. That is, he equated turning to a false god as going a whoring here. In another passage in Jeremiah, he talked about, why do you leave me? I'm, do, do I not satisfy you? I, I mean, I am, a, I am a wonderful drink of cold water from pure cisterns. And you go and drink out of broken, scummy, slimy, corrupt cisterns. The kind like that toilets have flushed into. And you go and drink out of that and you turn down my beautiful drink of cold water. In fact, you are driven to get away from me. And then he'll say, like a, a camel that's in heat running across the desert. You're chasing after other gods. Just crazy driven. And it's in sexual language. And that's what he's got here. Look in verse 7. And I thought after she had done this. She will return to me. In other words, they went away, a whoring after other gods. But I thought after they had their fun, they would come back to me, their true beloved. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Judah even saw it. And she saw, verse 8, that for all the adulteries, there you go, the adulteries of faithless Israel. In other words, idolatry is equated in the language of adultery. It's like God says, I'm the husband, you're the wife, you're to worship me, you're to love me, you're to be loyal to me, you're to be faithful to me. And you've gone adulterating after other gods. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. Judah didn't learn from it. But she too went and played the whore because she became, she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and with tree. Yet for all of this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. We can go back to Matthew 19. I just wanted to illustrate to you the very language that God uses with Israel and, and with the hardness of heart. And it is interesting to note, by the way, that in all pagan religions. I don't think you can find an exception that when there is idolatry involved, there is almost always sexual perversion and sexual immorality involved in, in even in their worship rituals. You'll find that in paganism over and over. God uses that language equating this idolatry with adultery. And he's what he's doing here is he's talking about the hardness of their heart. And I wanted you to see that as a result of the hardness of the heart and their ongoing unfaithfulness is God finally writes them a certificate of divorce and says, okay, I release you. We're no longer married. Interesting, isn't it? So we're looking back at Matthew 19 and Jesus has defined this unclean thing as something that is limited to sexual immorality. Let's talk about that for just a minute. This isn't in our notes, but... You need to understand that here is a point where there's a little bit of textual ambiguity, if I can say that about God's holy word again. I know it's written exactly the way God wanted it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But I'll tell you that this is a point of debate in the church for all of Christendom. It's especially become a point of debate in the church in America in the last 50 years. At one time, divorce and divorce and remarriage were totally shunned and totally unaccepted. And then Bible students began to look at this and say, well, what did Jesus mean? Did Jesus not mean what he said? You see, part of, the, part of the ambiguity that I'm referencing has to do with the fact that what's translated, except, he says, look what he says, except for sexual immorality. Your Bible might say fornication. Your Bible might say marital unfaithfulness. 
Now, generally, we understand the word fornication to be understood as sexual involvement between people who are not married and neither one of them are in a marriage. That would be fornication. So if young people who are never married engage sexually, we, we say they have committed fornication. The Bible teaches clearly that's a sin. You're not to do that. When somebody involved is married, we call that adultery. The reason that there's a little bit of debate or more than a little bit of debate about this passage is that the word that Jesus uses here for marital unfaithfulness isn't the everyday common defined word for adultery that he could have used there. There was a word that very specifically meant adultery. If you're married and your partner commits adultery, then you can divorce them and then you would be free to marry another and it would not be divorced. Instead, the word that Jesus uses is a word that you'll recognize. In the Greek, it's, it sounds like something like this, pornania. And we get our word pornography. What, what does that represent? Pornania is a broader word that represents sexual perversion, sexual sin. It's a little bit like going back to Deuteronomy 24 and talking about this general word for this uncleanness. It certainly represents something that is sexual, though. And it talks about the idea that the marriage bed, though it is sacred, can be corrupted by sexual perversion at some level. You're bringing someone else there. You're out and about and you're with someone as though they were your wife or your husband, you have committed this pornania fornication. So the question comes up, well, what, uh, I caught my husband viewing pornography. Can I divorce him? That's pornania. It would, pornography really would be pornania. So where do you draw the line? And then our debate begins. Well, let me tell you, here's what pornania means. It means these 10 things. Or it just means blatant adultery. That's it. They were with another person completely as if they were married and they violated their marriage vow and that's it. So how do you handle this stuff? <coughs> well, it's not easy. I can tell you that my conviction is that Jesus is specifically talking here about ongoing sexual sin that violates the marriage vow. And see, I spoke in a little bit of a general term. Ongoing sexual sin that violates the marriage vow and the fidelity of the marriage. So what do we do with this? How do we handle this? Well, one thing I do want to say is I think we need to be very careful that we don't look for the letter of the law and some excuse to be able to divorce this 210 pounds of dead weight that I ended up linking up with 20 years ago. Because I sure am not happy with them anymore, even when it's a moonlit night in June. I don't think what Jesus is talking about here is trying to figure out a way that you can divorce your partner. In fact, he's narrowing it way down from the culture of the day. And in fact, if we just lived this out, that it was blatant sexual sin, that would narrow it way down even in our culture and even in our church and the divorces that have taken place. Certainly the disciples understood and were shocked by his teaching, saying that if you can't divorce for more reason than this sexual sin, that's pretty narrow, and I wouldn't even want to get married. And Jesus says, you better reconsider that, because there's three kinds of eunuchs, and you might not fit any one of those, or nor might you want to enjoy being one of those, and you might want a wife, so you better figure out how to stay married to her. It's basically what I think Jesus is saying in that other part. So you can see in our notes that I, I added another question. I said... Um, is there any other examples in the Bible whereby a divorce, uh, and, and I take it then a remarriage, could occur? And I only know of one other, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And that is where Paul is very specific that a desertion of an unsaved person or your mate who's, who's unsaved deserts you because of your faith, largely because of your faith. They desert you that you, he says, you are no longer bound the idea would be we are free from that relationship. I personally have the conviction that 2 Corinthians, now I want to make that clear, I personally, Van Marceau, this is debated among Bible students. I personally believe that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. I believe that if a divorce occurred before salvation, that that is a different standing and it is something that is under the blood and done away with in a way that somebody who's born again who seeks a divorce does not have that liberty. 
So if you were divorced and remarried before you were saved, that's under the blood of the cross. It's forgiven. It's over. Another little question that comes up is, okay, so wait a minute, Pastor Van. Just like in the audience of the day when Jesus poked his finger in their eye and he said, except for fornication, except for sexual immorality, um, and a whole bunch of people in the audience had had divorces for other reasons, and you go and you marry another, then you commit adultery. It's possible that you're sitting here today and you hear the message and you're realizing you're putting two and two together and you realize, I divorced for reasons other than sexual immorality and I'm, I remarried. Did I commit adultery and am I living in ongoing adultery? Well, I would say the first part of the answer for sure, I would say with confidence, yes. If you divorced for a reason other than sexual violation here, and you remarried, then you committed adultery when you remarried. The question about ongoing adultery is a little bit more difficult of a question to answer. I lean towards the idea that the adultery is a, it's kind of a one-time adultery. And that every time, that you are now married with that person, and the Bible is clear, and I would counsel you to stay married to that person. You're not to divorce that person and come away and try to return to the old relationship. Whoever you're married to right now, you're supposed to stay married to them. And God's will starts brand new for your life right now. And I don't hold the position that you're living in an ongoing adulterous relationship. But I might be wrong. But I know that 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So instead of, if I was confusing, if you... Divorced contrary to the parameters of Scripture and remarried, you committed adultery. I take it that it was an adulterous, one-time adultery. But you're now married to that person. That is your wife. You're supposed to stay married to them. And it's not an ongoing adultery, but you're guilty of that sin. You need to confess it, forsake it, and make it right at the foot of the cross. Now, I know that our time is gone, but I want to look at the text box on the addendum. Because one of my concerns coming out of this message, and this is only going to take a couple more minutes, please. And it would be hard to come back to it. One of my concerns is that we see an exception clause. And you say, aha, Pastor Van holds to the exception clause. That, that if, if there was some kind of sexual corruption of the marriage bed, and I take that to be... I personally hold it into the area pretty much of adultery. You've sinned with another person who's not your spouse. You wouldn't be seeking this over pornography or lesser things. It's my opinion. As you say, if I can just get my spouse to commit adultery, then I got away out of this thing. And I can remarry. And I've been seeing this cute girl at the coffee pot every day. And I'd really like to get involved there. And I don't want the response to this message to be, okay, we've got an exception. Let's work the letter of the law loophole here. That's not what Jesus is teaching. And so I wanted to give a little bit of instruction here. And I wrote eight reasons why divorce for sexual immorality should be entered into with great reticence. And really there's nine. Because right before I printed it, I thought of a ninth one I wanted to put down. And I didn't change my title. And the other thing, early this morning, I got to, got to doubting my use of the word reticence. That maybe that wasn't the exact word I wanted right there. But the notes were already printed. And, um, and I was relieved that the second definition of reticence works. Um, it means reluctance. The first one has to do with not able to communicate or say words effectively. Here's nine reasons why divorce for sexual immorality should be entered into with great reluctance and hesitancy. That is, I'm not looking for just some little loophole and get away. First, would you agree with me that when we studied... Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6 last week, that Jesus' four reasons for going back to Genesis on marriage held a high standard for marriage. Jesus had a high standard for marriage. He didn't allow for divorce. It was never God's intention. And I think the very reason that God created marriage to be a one-time thing, one man, one woman, not two men, not two women, whatever... That there was a high view of marriage presented by Jesus. And I think that we need to have such an awe and respect for the sanctity of marriage that we would never enter into a divorce. Even if we think we have the technical right to do that for sexual sin and violation, that we would never enter into that quickly. I'm not saying you have to stay living with the person. You might need to separate, but you don't need to go get a divorce. 
Secondly, I believe in looking at this material again that the phrase hardness of heart Remember, Deuteronomy used that. They asked Jesus why he allowed, why Moses would have allowed it. Jesus said, because of the hardness of heart and sinfulness. Hardness of heart itself implies a long life of sinfulness, I think. I don't think that's a, that's a flash in the pan event. Hardness of heart in, is the idea that this person has gone and turned away from God for a season, a long time, and they are hardened. And because of that, I don't think you make quick decisions. It's reflected, number three, in the example of God's divorcing Israel or in Judah in Jeremiah chapter three. And that, believe it or not, represents 700 years of unfaithfulness by Israel and by Judah. 700 years before God finally said, I'll write you a certificate of divorce. He didn't do it easily. And in fact, read the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, Hosea was God's man and God calls on Hosea and he says, I want you to go downtown to the red light district and I want you to marry this one prostitute down there. He does. He marries her and he has children with her. And God says, now I want you to stay in love with her and I want you to pursue her. And he follows her up and down through her, her travesties and he pays her bills and he watches out for her and he tries to bring her back home. He has children with her. He stays married to her. And the whole thing was a picture of God's loyalty and fidelity to Israel in the middle of their unfaithfulnesses. I think these pictures matter. I think that... And I, don't, I hate to use the word, an incidental infidelity. It's never incidental, but my point is it was maybe unplanned. Maybe you, you got into a situation, you hate yourself for getting into it. And now your wife wants to divorce you or vice versa. I say, hold off, hold off. This is not an example of ongoing hardness of heart here. We need to wait on God to do his work. We don't have a technical loophole now where we can run down and get divorced because of the exception clause of Matthew 19. The clear emphasis, number four, in the New Testament on forgiveness of being without limitations enters in. The reality that forgiveness does not automatically restore trust. It's, you can forgive somebody, but you still don't trust them if you're wise. So what do we need? We need time to go by. Don't get a divorce yet. Recovery from the life-shattering impact of unfaithfulness takes time. Especially if it was an ongoing, long-term unfaithfulness. To recover from that takes a long time. You, you say, well, I prayed and God didn't bring him back to me. Or I've been praying and for six months, Pastor, six months I've been alone now. I've had it. I can't. I've reached my limitations. Six months? Are you kidding me? It took you 13 years to dig the hole that you called a marriage to begin with. Why don't you give God a chance to get you out of it? You see, we're impatient. Really, lots of times, we just want out. And so he says, listen, and I, I understand, and you understand if you've been through a divorce more than I do, it's life-shattering. Number seven, God often uses sin, shame, and failure to break hard hearts. The offended one needs time to allow God to reprogram what were often lifelong patterns in the offender. The offended one needs to give time for God to reprogram the offender. I'm not saying you have to live with him. I'm not saying you have to like him. I'm saying you better get a good godly counselor. But I'm saying you do not need to divorce that quickly. Once the divorce takes place, listen to this. Number eight, once the divorce takes place, the difficult process of recovery is compounded by the very process of the divorce itself and one's vulnerability to new relationships. I have seen this over and over again. I reminded you in the text box on how to react if your spouse is unfaithful to you and you're Christians. I didn't go over that list. It's on the notes box. And I reminded you there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, do not go before unsaved people to settle your legal affairs. What I'm talking about here is I'm talking about you get in a divorce and you say, okay, that's it. But I'm going to go ahead and get divorced and then maybe God will rebuild my marriage after that. Now I'll tell you what happens. You go down and shame on you for going down to the secular court when there's two professing believers involved. It's wrong. You get your elders together. We get an arbitration board together. So I would never talk about all that in front of them. They're the ones who will help you the most. You humble yourself in front of your spiritual leaders you don't harden your heart. 
And lots of times the offended one ends up hardening their heart and they don't give a chance for restoration because they are so hurt. That's why time needs to go by. You can't get over this in sometimes one year or even two years. It might take more than two years to get over to where you're ready to finally reconcile yourself and you haven't even sinned. But I'm saying you go through the process of divorce and here's what happens. And I know I'm way out of time. Just listen. I'll finish up. When you go through the process of divorce, you're sitting in a courtroom and there's a judge and you're sitting there with a lawyer and you're sitting there with a lawyer and you can't even stand to look at each other and they won't even let you talk to each other and the lawyers are meeting outside talking and they're trying to sell it. And by the time they've divided your kids and your garage and your tools and your basement and your beach house and your, and your retirement funds and they've taken away all your property and then one has the cat and one has the dog, you can't stand each other because now you're splitting plywood from last week. And by the time you get out of there, you hate that person. You think going through the divorce was a good step towards reconciliation? Let's just get a divorce, then we can all get along. No, get a divorce if you really want to hate that person. And that's what happens. And by the time you're done, and then what happens, you got your divorce. And now that cute chick down at the coffee pot really looks good to you. Because, hey, I got a divorce. I'm free. And I'm telling you, hold off. Hold off. But Jesus said, except for pornonia, sexual immorality. I know he did, but there's lots of other principles involved, aren't there? So we have to stop and someday we'll pick up maybe some more questions. I'll not even try to summarize, but by God's grace, may we have strong marriages. I don't know where you are today in your relationship. If you're looking for an out, if you're trying to forgive somebody who's sinned sexually against you, you give it time. I will say emphatically, whoever you're married to today, that's who you're supposed to be married to now. And God's will starts right now today. Humble yourself at the foot of the cross. Confess and forsake the godlessness of the past and any sin that you did in stupidity and selfishness and fleshliness. And start with a clean slate today before the Lord. And young people, don't get married until you hop over that fence, okay? That'll help a little bit. Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, would you strengthen our homes and our marriages? Would you help us, Lord, to know how to react to this material from our Lord's teaching? Would you forgive us for hardness of heart that we have? Sometimes we hide our hardness of heart even. Would you give us tender hearts for our spouses, for our families? Would you help us take care of sin that is bored into our lives and is eating the heart out of our marriage? Would you give us the courage, if any are goofing around outside of the parameters of marriage, to knock it off, confess it, and forsake it as sin? Return to the wife of their youth. Father, for those who find themselves divorced and single, would you give them wisdom as they process their lives? And Father, there's probably 39 questions I haven't answered today at all. And it's not easy. Would you just give a special grace for people who are in all kinds of situations? We want to think biblically. We want to live biblically. We want to honor our Lord Jesus Christ with our lives. Would you please accomplish these things in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.